morning, church family. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 14. We will pick up this morning in verse 26 and consider down through verse 52 here in just a moment. I want to remind you of a couple of things. First, somebody a little while ago came, came in the lobby and says, Pastor, are you, did you like run a 5K or something and you're wearing your shirt this morning? Um, folks, you ought to know your pastor better than that by now. I reserve running uh, for when I am running from something only, okay? And so, no, I did not run a 5K this weekend, and I'm proud of it and wearing the shirt. But I am proud that I got to hang out with students all sitting over here from our church, as well as teenagers from Pocosin Baptist Church, Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, and Christ Fellowship Williamsburg, our pillar network partners here in Hampton Roads. Uh, this was the first joint effort of our churches uh, who have partnered together through this network to do um, an event together. We have some other things planned for later, even later in this year, where our, all of our churches may be able to come together. Uh, but we started with the teenagers from our church. And so we have hosted Disciple Now Weekend here for years, but invited some other churches to participate with us in the large group sessions. And then they went into their own homes and did their own Bible studies. We just had a great time. So we talked this week, this weekend, uh, from 1 Corinthians 9 about what does Paul mean when he says that we should run the race. We talked about perseverance and endurance. And uh, I was able to preach. This is my fourth time to preach this weekend because I preached Friday and then twice again yesterday from Luke chapter 9 on the disciples' confession of faith, the disciples' cost of actually following Jesus, and the disciples' commission to go and to proclaim the gospel. And so we had a great weekend. If you see any adults wearing one of these t-shirts, it probably means they hosted kids in their home or helped out in some way. So when you see them out uh, in the lobby or in the hallways or in your small group, thank them for uh, serving not only our church this weekend, but serving three other churches in our area who we partner with. And we really had uh, a great weekend. And students, do your very best to stay awake during our service. And I also want to thank uh, Pastor Don for beginning our 21 days of prayer. He held up that prayer guide. If you don't have one, there are some in the lobby. We really do want you to uh, pray through that. We believe that prayer matters. And as we head now three weeks out into the Easter season, preparing our own hearts for Resurrection Sunday and seeking to proclaim the gospel in our community, we want to pray together for those things. So make sure you pick up one of those prayer guides if you did not do so last week. I invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 26. I recognize this is a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I want you to hear it all as, as Mark progresses through this last evening before the crucifixion. And really, as we focus now on what I introduced a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of this, really his central tenet of this whole chapter, and that is the complete and total abandonment of Jesus by all around him. So start here in verse 26. This is beginning in the upper room. where They had had the Lord's Supper we looked at last week. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the shepherd will be, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour may pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it enough? The hour has, it is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you that we can gather together as your body, this church, community of faith, to worship you and to study your word. And we are grateful, God, for our students and their opportunity that they had this last weekend to study your word, to encourage one another, to have fun together, and, and then even to connect with like-minded brothers and sisters in our, from our partner churches. God, I pray that because of the work of your Holy Spirit, not, not words that I said or even words that our teachers said who were in the homes with our students, but because of the power of your Holy Spirit and, and, and the, the work of your word in their lives that, that we will have teenagers that are taking serious the call of discipleship, maybe even some for the first time confessing faith in Jesus. Fathers, I've prayed all weekend, would you raise up a generation of disciples that make disciples amongst our students? And now, God, as we turn our attention to this section of Mark in your word, may the weight of it sit on us. May we see the suffering and emotional despair of our Lord in this last night. But by the end, Lord, may we find encouragement and peace and strength for the day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
I have entitled our sermon here through this section of Mark, Alone, Betrayed, and Abandoned, because that is how Jesus finds himself on this last night. My goal is not going to be to soften the emotional weight of this, these passages, but to allow them, as I prayed, to sit heavy on us. Here in this story, the darkness of night has set in. The torment of the cross of Christ awaits him. But before that comes an emotional torment that we so often look past. We so often will read these stories, and if you've been around Christianity, you've been a Christian and follower for Jesus, you have probably read this account in Mark and the parallel accounts in the other gospels countless times. And we focus on a few things that Jesus says in the garden. And then we kind of just move past the rest of these events onto some of what we'll see next week, Peter's denial of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, but our minds fully focused on the suffering of the cross. And in some ways, rightly so, because it is, it is all of this culminates in the suffering of the cross, which we will get to in three weeks on Easter and will include both the cross and the resurrection that morning. But I want us to slow down for just a moment and take these events together and see that it was not only physical torment that Jesus suffered on the cross. It was not only the spiritual weight that Jesus felt sinless son of God as the sins of all who would believe were cast upon him on the cross in the great exchange where he took our sin and we take his righteousness. But there is actually an emotional suffering that Jesus experiences here on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. This last night of his life, as he is left alone during his great grief, betrayed by one of the 12, and then ultimately abandoned by every last one of them. And as we'll see, it all happens just as Jesus had told them at the beginning of the evening. The main idea of today's sermon is that the suffering of Christ on our behalf includes his betrayal and abandonment by those closest to him. I wanna start where, before we get into the exposition where I will end just briefly, just to set it up because I, I want you to process all of this, I think, well. There are people in this room that I, when I use words like alone, betrayed, and abandoned, who instantly have emotional triggers going off in their minds because through the sins that we experience in this world and the sinfulness of our relationships, you have experienced some of these things. I recognize that in a crowd this size gathered this morning, there are people who right now are feeling at least one, if not all of these, or have recently in their lives experienced one of these emotions that we're going to see Jesus experience. I don't want us to be detached from the text. I don't want us to make the text all about us. 
But I'm going to end by telling you that Jesus went through all of this so that we could have a Savior that understands what we are going through. I want you to hear today not only the weight of the darkness and emotional pain that Jesus suffers for us, but I also want you to recognize that at the end of this, there is encouragement and there is peace. So let's begin in our exposition first. Jesus knows the relational suffering he will endure. What what is coming before him is not a surprise to him. And he tells this to his disciples. They are ending the, the, the period of time in the upper room where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And we're told in verse 26 that they sing a hymn, very likely, uh, they would have sang one of the Egyptian Hallels. These, were, these are Psalms 113 to 118. They were w- written to praise God for his faithfulness in delivering the people out of bondage in Egypt. And as the people of God remembered the Passover, they would sing and recite these psalms to one another. So while Mark doesn't tell us which psalm it is, it was very likely one of them. And they have sung these psalms together. And then Jesus intentionally leads them out of the city for the last time, across the Kidron Valley, onto the uh, the Mount of Olives, specifically to an area known as the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where the final things take place. This was an olive grove, an olive press. It would have been a, a place of contemplation, but also in the evening, probably during the day, maybe in a place where people were working. But it's just right across the mountain range, right across to the next hill. And Jesus says this to them. He tells them that they will all fall away, and then he connects their action and his prophecy. This is a prophecy. He's telling them something's going to happen that happens just within an hour or so later. But he he quotes them from Zechariah 13, 7 and says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So hundreds of years before the prophet Zechariah writing about the time of the Messiah says that God himself will be the one who will strike the shepherd and that his sheep will scatter. So as we have seen, as we've kind of walked through Mark 14 over the last few weeks, I've I've made mention of and reference to regularly that this is part of God's plan, that Jesus is moving towards the cross intentionally, knowingly, all a part of the plan of God to redeem his people. And it is God who will strike him and his sheep will scatter. And so... The Lord for his disciples and for us in our reading connects that Old Testament prophecy to the events of that night. John for us in his account of the gospel story records far more of the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in the upper room than the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. John actually records several chapters that Jesus says, the teachings and the prayers that Jesus has for his disciples during that evening and included in that in John 16. So he's even told them, I want you to see, he told them in the upper room already. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. 
Jesus is not unaware of what awaits. He is fully aware of every piece of it. And he is telling his disciples what is to come. And I'm going to come back to some of this discussion that they have, but let's just, let me just mention it here quickly. They, they don't receive this very well. At least one of them at first does not receive this very well. Peter says, no, I, I will go to, if I have to die, I'm not going to deny you. Now, if you know the story, ultimately Peter does. But, and we'll see that next week. But he says, I, if I have to die, he becomes indignant, really. I am not going to deny you, Jesus. And then, and he even, he even casts doubt on his friends, right? He says, even if all of them do, I won't. And then they all join in. Mark tells us emphatically, all saying the same thing. And they're looking at Jesus and saying, no, you're wrong. And in a mere hour and a half or so, he is going to be proven right. Number two, the second section shows us that Jesus is alone, physically alone. John has told us that he is relying on the Father, and so we see that connection. But physically alone in his time of grief. This now they have, in this, they have now progressed to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples in verse 32, sit here and pray. So he leaves the bulk of them. They are now down to 11. Judas has left during the period of time in the upper room. So they're now down to 11. And he leaves eight of them. I'm bad at math, but I think I'm doing this math right. He leaves eight of them in one place and takes the three that were closest to him, Peter, James, and John, and goes a little further into the garden and at that time becomes greatly distressed and troubled. We don't like to think often of Jesus as distressed and troubled, but he was. This is the humanity of Jesus on display for us. One of the greatest displays of the humanity of Jesus is what takes place in the garden. It, it never, his troubling and distress never rise to the level of sin. It's not anxiety that we would, that we would call, anxiety or worry that we would call sin, like Jesus talks about earlier in his ministry. But still, there is a distress and troubling within his heart. He is, we're told in verse 34, very sorrowful, even to the point of death in his soul. And he asks his disciples to remain and to watch. By saying watch, he's saying stay awake, pay attention, maybe even an invitation to pray with him. And he goes a little further by himself, falls to the ground, we're told in verse 35, and turns to his father who he know who is with him and says, if it were possible, he asks, would this hour pass from me? And he says, Father, with you, all things are possible. Would you remove this cup from me? But then Jesus says, yet not I will, but what you will. Another reminder that all along this path, God is in control. And it is, it, it, allow that to be an encouragement for you today. To, to recognize, because sometimes when, when we become sorrowful or distressed, when we feel alone and abandoned, we feel as if God has lost control. And we feel as if God has lost control because we feel as if we have lost control. Listen, it's important to probably recognize that we're not ever really in control to begin with. But he is. 
and he never loses control. He is providentially working in his world and has been from the beginning. And he, we, this is demonstrated for us here in the garden in the words of Jesus. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He says, Father, you can do anything. You can remove this cup from me. But not what I will, but what you will. And then after saying this to the Father, obviously praying some more because now an hour has passed. He comes back and finds the disciples, specifically calls out Peter. Now he specifically calls out Peter because Peter was the vocal one earlier saying, I will not abandon you. He couldn't even stay awake for an hour. I will not abandon you. And he asks them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying some words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want us to connect to these Emotions that Jesus is feeling. Have you ever felt like this? That you've asked even some of your closest friends for help? Could you do this one thing for me? I imagine that if I asked you, could you stay awake for an hour? Teenagers looking at you. Can you stay awake for the next hour? They're doing good, by the way. I mean, you can't always see them. They're, they're doing well. It's been a long weekend, okay? But if I asked you, like, could you stay awake for an hour? You'd probably say, I can do that. Yeah, I, I can help you with that. I mean, that's a, that's a small request, isn't it? And yet twice his closest disciples are unable to fulfill this, this just what would seem like a menial task. Will you just stay awake and watch while I go off and pray? Have you ever asked a friend for something? I mean, somebody close to you, and it seems as if they are unable to do just the simplest thing. And in that moment, we feel completely and entirely alone. That's what we recognize. We are not actually alone because God is with us. Who is it that Jesus turns to when his closest friends won't even stay awake? He turns to the Father. He prays to God, expressing his suffering, but also his desire for full obedience. Reflecting back on this time, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 helps us to see a little bit why Jesus goes through this. In Hebrews 5 verse 7, we read, In the days of his flesh, this is talking about his earthly ministry, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reference. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designed by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Even in the garden, on this last night of his ministry before the cross, the humanity of Jesus was still growing in his obedience to the Father. Now that isn't to say that he was ever disobedient, because he was never disobedient, he was without sin. But as the end approaches, Jesus continues to gain knowledge and human experience in his flesh. And the last night of his ministry came at great emotional cost, yet he relied on the Lord and cried out to the Lord when he felt alone. 
we're told that, that Jesus grew in knowledge and wisdom. And so it's not, the, the author of Hebrews isn't saying he was at some point disobedient, but in his flesh, he continued to build even up to the end more and more trust in the Father and saying, not my will, but yours, even if all of these can't stay awake, I'm going to trust in you. And this was the path for the suffering servant. This was God's will for his Messiah. We've been considering some parts of Isaiah 53 during this time because Isaiah 53, along with some other Old Testament passages, really open our eyes to the, the prophecies about the Messiah and, and what Jesus fulfills on our behalf. Isaiah 53, 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It was always God's design that his suffering servant would feel anguish in his soul, but would rely fully on God. What an example we have in Jesus in the garden, knowing what awaits him and knowing his disciples are even unable to stay awake. He remains faithful to God only. Number three, Jesus is betrayed by one of his own. We've already considered the betrayal of Judas when we looked previously at his plan to betray Jesus, but now that plan becomes reality in the middle of the night in the garden. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss as the man sees him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Here is the, 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 the plan between the Sanhedrin and Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, that plan that they had made just mere hours before, maybe a day or two before, is now found reality. Remember, they, they did not want to arrest Jesus in the temple. They didn't want to arrest him during the feast because the crowds had flocked towards Jesus and, and they were afraid of an uprising. And they were afraid of an uprising because an uprising would have meant that Rome would have come and exercised their authority in the city. And that's what the Sanhedrin didn't want because the less Rome the less Roman involvement, the more the Sanhedrin got to rule. And so they were protecting themselves by doing this at night. And Judas comes. And we find it odd, don't we? And even Jesus says this in the end. He says, you've come with me with robbers, like, like robbers with sword, or like a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, even though I was teaching every day in the temple. It's not as if, the, the Sanhedrin and those sent by the Sanhedrin needed Judas to actually identify Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. Judas is playing two parts here. Number one, he is playing the part of a witness. And, and so this is a little bit just them getting their ducks in a row that, yes, we actually have a witness that, that will confirm that Jesus is 
he was saying blasphemous things. That's ultimately the accusation they're going to make about him, that he's a blasphemer and that he was claiming to be God and that Judas was going to be their witness. So from a legal perspective, Judas is playing the role of a witness. But there's more to what Judas does here, and it seems a little odd to us that Judas goes up and does two things, calls him rabbi and kisses him. Now, kissing someone that you're betraying is, is not necessarily a biblical thing. It wasn't necessarily a Roman thing. It wasn't really part of the culture. Two, two things are at play here. First, again, he's playing the part of a witness, but second, Judas is mocking Jesus. The more I've read this, the more I've looked into this, I really think this is true, that Judas has progressed to the point, remember, Satan is now inside of Judas, that, that he, is, he is controlled by the enemy. And so if we're going to hear the enemy speak, it's here through the words of Judas. And Judas the, the way the word rabbi is written, he, you'll notice there's an exclamation point. That's, that's our English translator's uh, attempt to kind of show you that this is a little different. He's not crying out rabbi happily. He's crying out rabbi mockingly. Jesus is no longer Judas's rabbi. He is no longer Judas's teacher. Judas is saying this mockingly, and then he goes up and kisses him. This, this intimate expression of love between people. Judas goes and kisses Jesus. All of this intended to mock him in fulfillment of the scriptures. Back in the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah says, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief as one from whom mid in their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The suffering servant was going to be rejected. He was going to be mocked. And this is just the beginning of the mocking. The Sanhedrin will mock him. The Roman soldiers will mock him. The crowd will mock him. The passers-by on the road as he is crucified will mock him. One of the criminals hanging next to him will mock him. This is just the beginning. Judas is just the prologue of what comes that night. Let me just make one quick additional note here from this section before we move on, because I think Mark's language is important. He says in verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd. We know that Judas is one of the 12. Mark knows that we know this. Judas has been introduced to us in the gospel of Mark as one of the disciples. Previously in this chapter, we're told that Judas is one of the 12 is conspiring with Jesus. We were told in the upper room that one of the 12 would betray him. So why does Mark call him one of the 12? To reiterate the point that it wasn't some nameless, faceless crowd or rabble or gang of thugs that come to the garden that night to arrest Jesus. It was one of the men he had spent years investing in. Again, the, the, these accounts are about the emotional, relational torment that Jesus experienced moving towards the cross. And can you imagine a greater one? To have someone so close to you betray you in such an intimate way and mock you as he does it. And I say that recognizing that some of you have also 
placed your trust. Now, again, Jesus knew that Judas would do this even when he called him. But some of you have placed your trust in people, great trust in people, who have not only left you alone, but have betrayed you, personally betrayed you, betrayed your trust, mocked you, went from being a trusted friend to a hateful enemy. You've experienced pieces of what Jesus experiences on this night. But notice the way that Jesus experiences it. He experiences it in a way that, again, demonstrates his trust in the Lord. He says, why would you come out here like this? And even in the midst of all of this, we get the story of, Mark just says one of, one of those with Jesus. Um, elsewhere, we're told that it's Peter. We're also told who Peter's ear cuts off, and we're told that Jesus heals the ear. Mark just kind of makes mention of that quick fact and moves on. Nothing really comes of it very much. And that's why Mark moves quickly to it. But notice what Jesus does after saying, why have you come out me, after me like this? He says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This was always the way that it was going to go. Demonstrating to us that even when those closest to us turn their backs on us, even when those closest to us betray us and mock us, we have one in whom we can trust. God alone. Finally, Jesus is abandoned by all of his followers. At the end of that section, verse 50, and they all left him and fled. I want to come back to the last two verses, verse 51 and 52, in a minute. But let me just talk about verse 50. So all of this scuffle happens. One, Peter yanks a sword, thinks he's going to fight, right? This bravado of I am not going to leave you dies out quickly. In one sword stroke, the fight's over. The realization that the mob is there to arrest Jesus and anyone with Jesus is likely to go down with him. This was the common occurrence that rebels were killed and anyone close to that lead rebel was killed with them, sometimes in horrific ways by the Romans. And so fear overtakes them and they all flee. I find the way Mark has constructed this for us helpful. So let's just go back. I said we were going to come back to these. Let's just go back and look at a few verses. We're even going back to last week when, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper in verse 23. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And notice what happens. Notice the pronoun here. They all drank of it. Everybody at the table drinks of it. Then just moments later, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. And then they argue, right? First Peter in verse 29, even though they all, all my friends and my brothers, even though these brothers fall away, I will not. And they, he said emphatically, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And then notice all of the brothers at the table gather and they all said the same thing. Just in quick succession, we get this, this inclusive pronoun, all describing the disciples of Jesus, just one after another after another, and then we, ne we don't get it again. Mark doesn't use that pronoun again in the garden in any of the descriptions of the events of Jesus until we get to verse 50, and they all left him. Everybody who drank of the cup left him. Everybody who said just 
hour or two before, even if we go to death, we will not deny you. They all left him and fled, every one of them. There are two Psalms, actually more than two, but there are two Psalms that help us here that are messianic Psalms. One, I consider a Psalm of the cross, Psalm 22. Uh, I've actually preached that on Easter here several years ago. It, 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 It just written 900 or so years before Jesus, um, just demonstrates to us God's plan and providence in preparing the cross for Christ. And in that Psalm in verse 11, we read, be not far from me for trouble is there, there is near and there is none to help me. Another Messianic Psalm is Psalm 69 telling about Jesus. And in that one, we're told, I have become a stranger to my brother and an alien to my mother's son. This was always the plan that Jesus would demonstrate to us his trust and reliance on the Lord alone as even those closest to him flee. Now, two of my favorite verses in the entire gospel of Mark is verses 51 and 52, because they are just strange. Look with me. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. None of the other gospel authors tells us of this young man. And if you read this on the surface, you may wonder, How is that information pertinent to the story? Well, I told you last week that we engaged in a little bit of conjecture in thinking that it was at least possible, and we looked at some places in Acts that helped maybe support this, that it was at least possible that the man carrying the jug of water that the disciples were looking for to have a place for the upper room was Mark himself. And it is also possible, I think, likely in this case. The other one I would say is possible. This one I would actually say is likely. That this young man, included only by Mark, unnamed, is Mark himself. So just imagine with me, if it is Mark's home, Mark's mother's home that is ultimately established as the home base of ministry in Jerusalem because it is where the disciples had the upper room, and Mark maybe is a teenager at this time, that he is sensing something special about that night and the movement of Jesus and his disciples, so he goes out in nothing but his bedclothes to follow to see what would happen. But here's why I think Mark includes this, not just to put himself in the story, but to provide for us an example that we too would have fled. I can't say with certainty that this young man is Mark. But I can say with certainty that if any of us were this young man on this night, we would have fled too. We would have in fear, as this young man did, run away even naked, leaving our clothes behind. I think Mark includes this here, even if if it is his own story or not, so that we will identify as the readers with what this young man does, so we will identify with the disciples in what they do, that Jesus is alone. This is all of us. So what? When we feel alone, 
betrayed or abandoned, we should look to Christ who understands our pain and provides peace and access to God. These are the three emotions that Jesus experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is alone in his grief as he cries out to the Father and his disciples completely unwilling to even stay awake. He is betrayed by Judas, one of the 12 that he had invested his life in. And he is ultimately abandoned by all of them, even a young man who flees away with no clothes, representing maybe all of us. And we have all, as I began this morning, have felt some, if not all, of these emotions and some sitting in this room right now on the verge maybe of tears are saying, Pastor, I feel it now. Alone. I feel as if those closest to me have turned their backs on me. I feel as if everyone has run away from me in my pain. And here is my encouragement to you. Do as Christ did. Look to God. We look to him because he understands our pain. Because of the, human, the experiences of the humanity of Jesus, we can look to Jesus, the son of God, who experienced those things so that he understands us and provides peace and access to God for us. Earlier I had read Psalm, uh, John 16, 32, where Jesus had told the disciples that they will all scatter, leaving him alone. But then Jesus says what John records in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, you're all going to scatter and leave me. But the whole reason this is happening is so I can experience this deep pain and suffering, and then you can all look to me for peace. That's the reason. It's so that Jesus could provide us with peace. No matter what this we experience in this world, no matter the tribulation we have to endure during our time here, because he has overcome the world and so we can look to him. Back to our author in Hebrews. So I already talked to us some about that last night of Jesus in Hebrews 4. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because God put on flesh and suffered as a man, he understands the temptation and trial that we experience in this life. And he did it without sin and is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. He knows our pain. He knows our emotional turmoil. And he demonstrated to us what it means to look to God in those moments. So through him, we are able to then draw near to God where we find mercy and grace and forgiveness and peace and comfort. So I encourage you today, suffering saint, don't wallow in your pain and sorrow. Don't drown it with the, with the ways of this world. Don't look to things like 
like drugs and alcohol. Don't look to things like, like, like the world systems that seek to fix our problems. Look to Christ. Look to Christ in your pain. Look to Christ in your sorrow. Look to Christ in your suffering. Look to Christ in your abandonment. Call to him. You may be alone, but you can look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the sovereign God providentially working in your life, and you can look to him and find peace and comfort. And, can I say it? You should, and I believe you can, look to the people sitting beside you now and say, you know what? My family may have abandoned me, but this family has not. My closest friends outside of here may have betrayed me, but my friends here have not. One of the primary ways that God works in our lives is through the people in our church. So if you are feeling these things today, alone, betrayed, abandoned, look to the people around you as a tangible offering of the comfort of God. And if you are not currently feeling those things, then be the tangible offering of the comfort of God for someone who is. This is going to require us to be open with what's going on in our lives This is why we encourage every one of you to be connected with a small group because in small group, we find the kind of community where we can share these things together because this is how God provides those things for us. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn called Christ is Mine Forevermore. And when we get to the second verse of that hymn, we will sing these words, mine are tears in times of sorrow. Darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Let's pray together. Oh, Father. Thank you that you provided for us and your son, a high priest who understands every second of our torment and pain and distress and sorrow and suffering. Taking all of that in his life and on the cross so that he may provide us hope and comfort and peace and salvation. And while we may, we may experience temporary distress, even great distress in this life, we know that you are completing a work in us that is far greater and far grander than we could ever imagine because you are turning us into the image of your son. And eternal life awaits us. Oh God, thank you. Use your church, we ask for those who feel alone and abandoned and betrayed. Let us rely on one another as we call out to you in these moments we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship him.